Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through verse 33. And if you don't, uh, you'll be okay because I'm going to move uh, very quickly because what I'm doing tonight in about uh, 35 or 40 minutes, uh, I often have the joy of doing over several hours. But uh, when we uh, uh, begin each semester... I always try to take the opportunity to speak to the married students because, first of all, outside of Jesus, uh, nothing has been more of a blessing to me than being married now for over 33 years to my wife, Charlotte. We married when I was 21 and she was 19. Uh, we married during the middle of my college experience, and so we got married on a Saturday in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, left for Dallas, Texas the next morning, and went back to work in school the next Tuesday. Not the way that I would encourage you to do that. I hope that you didn't do that. Uh, basically, I now owe her a perpetual honeymoon uh, because she didn't get one the first year that we were married. And so we did it that way, but yet I can say to you that uh, these 33 years together have been absolutely wonderful and, and fantastic in every way. Good days, bad days, uh, up and down times, but still uh, no regrets uh, outside of Jesus. Uh, Charlotte, the boys, and now the grandkids and the daughter-in-law is just the most wonderful aspect uh, of my life. But I know a lot of people that are not experiencing that. And I even know a lot of people that are in ministry that are not experiencing that. And I also know that coming to seminary brings additional uh, pressure. Uh, it requires uh, greater concentration. Uh, boy, it eats up time. And if you're not very sensitive and careful during these particular years, uh, your marriage can grow cold. You can become distant with each other. And, and to my heartache, every single year, uh, we'll have some students that will leave because they get in marital difficulty, and some of them uh, even find their marriages dissolving and falling apart, and I do not want that to happen to you. I want to do everything I possibly can to help prevent that. And so on the very front end, we want you to know that uh, we are a marriage, family, friendly institution. Uh, we want to help you enjoy your time here. We want it to be that when you graduate, uh, both of you have huge smiles on your faces because not only is it graduation day, but also this has been a great time. And, and you can actually look me in the face and say, Danny, uh, we were in love when we got here, and we were close when we got here, but we're now more in love, and we are closer and tighter and, and more united than we've ever, ever been. And if that happens, then this will have been a good time for you to be here at Southeastern. So if you were to ask, what is the text? Uh, that is in the Bible that makes clear in the most straightforward kind of a way what God's goal is for marriage and family. It is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, really going all the way through chapter 6 and verse 4. And what you discover is this. God gives a twofold job description for each member uh, of the family. He tells a wife, for example, uh, that she is to both submit and respect her husband. Uh, he tells a husband that he is supposed to both love and know his wife. Uh, he tells children that they are to both honor and obey their mom and dad. Uh, and he tells uh, parents that they, and fathers in particular, that they are to educate and they are to be an encouragement to their children. And so what I want to do tonight is talk, first of all, to the guys and then end up by talking to the ladies. And so if you have those handouts that are there, you'll find a, a pinkish sheet, uh, which is the one you want to begin with, and then a blue sheet that comes behind it. And basically, we're going to see in this text, uh, brothers, that God has called us to be a blessing to our wives by, by loving them and, and knowing them. And we're to love them and know them in a very particular kind of a way. I'll walk you through it very quickly, then talk about some practical ways that you have on that pink sheet that helps you live this out. But first of all, he says in verse 25 that a husband should love his wife in a sacrificial 
kind of a way. Husbands, love your wives. It's an imperative word of command. Uh, it's in the present tense, which means this is to be the, the pattern or the habit of your life. Husbands, continually love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the Bible begins by emphasizing the fact that a man's love for his wife is to be sacrificial. It's important for us to note that he's talking primarily here about a volitional decision and not an emotion. In other words, I'm a big fan, by the way, of emotions. I've been married for 33 years, and I am 54 years old, and I'm married to a really great 52-year-old, and I still get goosebumps on my arms, and I still get a rapid beating of my heart, and I still get butterflies in my stomach. I, I love to snuggle with her. I love to kiss her. I love to hug her and hold her and all the other good things that come with marriage. But I have to be honest with you, I don't always feel like that. I mean, I don't feel like that when she's not acting like Jesus. I don't feel like that hardly at all when she is not behaving as she ought. And so the fact of the matter is emotions come and go. But he is not saying in this text, love her if she's lovely or love her because she does lovely things, but rather he is saying you love her, period. You love her anyway. You love her even when she's not lovely. After all, that's how Jesus loved you and me when he died on that cross. In other words, isn't it amazing that, that Paul grounds his theology of marriage in the atonement? And he says, men, look to the cross, see there how Christ loves you, and then love your wife in that same kind of a way. It's a sacrificial love. But secondly, it's a sanctifying love. He says in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and without blemish. You see those very powerful words there, sanctify, uh, cleanse, uh, present her in splendor, no spot, no wrinkle, uh, no blemishes, that she would be holy. Now, it's easy to see how that works with Christ and the church. Question, how does that work in marriage? And here's the key. Because your wife is married to you, that should encourage her and enable her to grow to be more like Jesus. The word sanctification, that big theological term, simply means to grow in Christ's likeness. So a good question for all of us men to ask, and I ask myself this question on a regular basis. Sometimes I, I like the answer and sometimes I don't. Uh, because Charlotte Aiken is married to me, is that helping her to grow to be more like Jesus? Your love should be a sanctifying love. It should be a sensitive love. Number three, he says there in verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife also loves himself. In other words, Paul's argument is something like this. You are sensitive to you. You pay attention to you. And so in the same way that you give attention to yourself, you ought to give attention to your mate. I, I basically say to men that we need to develop what I call a marital radar system. And that radar system is sending out signals and picking up vibrations from our wife so that we are in touch with them and so that we know what's going on uh, in their world. Now, I will confess to you that when I first got married, though I had a marital radar system, it did not function uh, very well at all. But now, 33 years into it, it's not perfect, but it's a whole lot better. I mean, I can watch her walk into the room, and just by the way, she comes strutting in that room. I can tell you, happy girl, unhappy girl. I can tell. And then I look at her face, and I know just like this, it's going to be a good day or it's going to be another kind of day. And I know this just by the look on her face. Now, I didn't know that when I first got married, but I've been working at it and growing in it, uh, becoming more knowledgeable and understanding of her. And again, if I'm going to love her well, I'm going to become a student of my wife and study her so that I love her in a sensitive kind of a way. But then fourthly, your love should also be satisfying. He says in verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but he continually, it's a present tense participle, he continually nourishes, and another present tense participle, he continually cherishes uh, her just as Christ does the church. In other words, does your wife feel both fed and honored, cherished by your love? 
Is she satisfied by the way that you love her? And furthermore, does she sense that outside of Jesus, no one has a more precious uh, and special place in your life than does she? That means the children come down the line. That means your church comes down the line. That means other things are second, third, fourth, and fifth in comparison to your wife. Only the Lord Jesus has a more significant place in your life than does she. But then finally, and maybe even most importantly, he says your love should be specific. He says in verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself. King James, uh, New King James adds the word, let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself, which simply means what? You're to love your wife in such a way that you are known by all as a one-woman kind of man. Your friends know, your family knows, uh, your enemies know, she knows, everyone knows that you are a one-woman kind of man. Now, this is just, Danny Yeh can give you some practical counsel here. You can take it or be a fool and leave it alone, but here's the deal. When I married Charlotte, I did not know it, but I made a commitment to her that among ministers is often called the Billy Graham rule. And the Billy Graham rule is this. When Dr. Graham married Ruth, he made a commitment that he honored all the days of their married life. And that commitment was this. He would never, ever, ever be alone with a woman other than Ruth. And he honored that commitment till the day she died. And though we all know of tragic scandals among many, many pastors and many, many evangelists, there was never a scandal about Dr. Graham and his fidelity, his commitment to his wife, Ruth. Now, sometimes I share that and people say, well, you're just a sexist. Well, no, I'm not. Uh, well, you're just some kind of Neanderthal. I don't think so. Well, you got sexual hang-ups. Well, I don't think that either. Well, you're scared of women. No, I'm not scared of women. I'm scared of me. I don't trust me. And if you trust you, you're a fool. The Bible says, you'll help me fill in the blank, there was a man named David. He was a king. And the Bible says he was a man after what? God's own heart. Because he was at the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person. He lied. He committed adultery. And he murdered. Now, now, who in this room tonight would say, well, Danny, you need to understand something. I love God more than David. I wouldn't say that. And so if it could happen to King David, it could happen to me, it could happen to you. I don't have enough fingers and toes inside my toms to tell you how many friends I know, friends that I know, friends that I love who are no longer in ministry today and in many cases lost their marriage because they were at the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person that they had no business being with. You accuse me of being a sexist. You can accuse me of being a Neanderthal. You can accuse me of being uh, sexually hung up. But as long as I go to my grave having been faithful to my wife, I don't care. I don't care. And so you love her in a very specific kind of way. Now, how does that then flesh out in everyday living of life very quickly on that pink sheet? Let me share with you five things that I've learned from experience uh, that I believe are scripturally and biblically grounded and that I think the scriptures overall affirm as to things we can do in particular to be a great blessing to the woman that God has given us. Number one, be a spiritual leader, be a man of God. Be a man of conviction. Be a man of commitments and courage. Very strong masculine words, but also be a man of compassion. Uh, be a man uh, who, who is gracious and, and has character. Uh, the fact of the matter is, um, a good woman is probably worth her weight in gold, but a good man is worth twice his weight in gold. You say, why? And the answer is simple, because there are so few of them. And this world is desperate to see men who will take a stand for God and who will not bend or break or back up no matter what. Now, because all of you are here in this particular institution, uh, most likely you at least have some degree of giftedness in being able to love God really, really well with your mind. And so I accept that, but let me tell you something. Being a man of God does not require a great intellect. Being a man of God simply requires a great heart. Probably the most influential man in my life 
was a man who had a fifth-grade education. He was a dirt farmer in Douglasville, Georgia, and that man was my granddaddy. My granddaddy Galloway, who was the father of my mother, not highly educated, never stood up on a platform, never had accolades, never had anybody making a big fuss over him, was a man of God. In fact, he died when I was 14. And when I was invited back to the Victory Baptist Church in Douglasville, Georgia, when I was about 26 to preach at that church, he was buried up on the hill. Uh, I was introduced that morning as Mr. Galloway's grandson. He'd been dead for a decade, and they still knew and remembered who he was. He had that kind of impact as just a very simple man who was a very godly man. But you will bless your wife. You'll bless your kids. You'll bless your church. If you will just walk with God and be that man of God. Secondly, you can bless her with personal affirmation and appreciation. And just look at the underlying part. Openly commend her in the presence of others as a marvelous mate, friend, lover, and companion. Help her feel, it's underlined for a reason, that to you, no one is more important in this world. Now, here's what I think is the case in many marriages. Most men really do appreciate their wives, but that's not the issue. The issue is by the things you say and the things you do, does she feel appreciated? Oh, I know you appreciate her. I certainly appreciate my wife, Charlotte, but do I, do I as I look back over our marriage uh, life, do I think she always felt appreciated? No. Sometimes I acted like a jerk. Sometimes I was insensitive. Sometimes I didn't say thank you. I appreciate you. You're wonderful for the many things that she did and continues to do as a wife and as a mother and as a grandmother. And so it's, it is the case. I know that you appreciate her, but that's not the issue. The issue is does she feel appreciated? I've discovered that that is one of the best ways for your wife to be fed, uh, to be nurtured uh, by your love. Number three, you bless her with personal affection or this very mysterious word to most men, the word romance. Now, since it is a mystery to most men, let's read the paragraph very quickly. Shower her with timely, whatever that means, generous displays of affection. Tell her how much you care for her with a steady flow of things like words and cards and flowers and gifts and just common courtesies. And remember, affection is the environment in which sexual union, now I have all the men's attention, in which sexual union is enjoyed more fully and a wonderful marriage developed. Now, I'm going to stay here for just a moment. It's going to be a very painful moment, but it will probably be worth your entire seminary experience if you just get what I'm about to say in the next three or four minutes. Here's the fact. Most of you guys do not recognize romance from your wife's perspective. In fact, from her perspective, you would not know it if it snatched your nose like a turtle or if it bit you on the leg like a dog. You don't know what romance is from her perspective. Now, if you doubt my proposition, you go home and you ask her and say, please be honest, and she will. And she'll tell you, no, honey, I love you. You're wonderful. But Danny's right. You are not romantic. There is not a romantic bone in your body. And just get ready. She's going to lay you out. Now, you say, you seem to have some experience in this matter. Oh, I have some experience in this matter. We had been married for about 12 years. And uh, I was, of course, in ministry. And uh, at this particular time, for whatever reason, I decided to do a lot of reading in the area of marriage and family. I usually rotate the areas in which I keep reading. And so uh, I do marriage counseling. I do premarital counseling. I love marriage. So I was doing a lot of reading on marriage and family. And all the books I, I read kept saying the same thing. Women need romance. Women crave romance. Women want romance. Well, my wife seemed to be a pretty happy girl. So I came home one day. Walked into the house wanting a male pat on the back as we are want to want. And I said, uh, sweetheart, I just want to ask you a question. Me. Am I romantic? She yanked her head around so quickly, I am amazed that she did not suffer permanent damage to her neck. And she had a look in her eyes that I had never seen in 12 years of being married and three years of dating her. But I knew just like that, you asked the wrong question so here's what happened she looked at me she said well let me begin by saying that i do love you oh yeah you, you can see this coming from a hundred miles away 
I, I mean, this is almost verbatim. It, it, is, it is emblazoned on my brain. She said, I could not imagine being married to anybody but you. And you are a wonderful daddy to our four sons. But now that you ask after, what is it, 12 years? No. I don't think you have a romantic bone in your body. Well, being the typical male, that hurt my feelings, and it made me mad. So I responded, well, all these books I've been reading say you need it. How do you like that? She came back and said, well, all those books you've been reading are correct. And I said, well, fine. I, I might start trying to give it to you sometime. You know, I don't know, maybe you buy it at Walmart. I don't know. But anyway, I told her I was going to try to be romantic. Now, she'll be over there in about 25 minutes. You can seek her out and say, Miss Aiken, he told this story, and he, she will tell you, oh, yeah, it, it happened exactly, precisely. There, there's no need to use preacher talk and embellish this. This is the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. It was a Friday night a couple of weeks later. She was lying in the floor in the, di- in, in the family room. The boys weren't around. I don't know where they were. Either they were in bed asleep or they were spending the night somewhere. I don't know. I just know they weren't there. She was lying in the floor watching television, and I looked at her and looked around, and I thought, you know, this would be a good time to be romantic. So I quietly and quickly made my way over, bent over, began to massage her back and neck, thinking that was a good way to start. And she turned around and looked at me and said, why don't you go and leave me alone quit bothering me? So I stepped back, and I said, well, I thought that, that, that was romantic. And she said, well, no. It's not romantic now, and it won't be romantic later either. I knew what that meant too, and so I, um, oh yeah, oh yeah, you've all been there. Don't say that you haven't. You're lying if you say that. Now, I, I, I went to bed early that night by myself. There was no future in staying up late that evening. You know, it just wasn't going to happen. So anyway, I, I went to bed, and then the next morning, Saturday morning rolled around, and my wife, uh, still to this day, loves this stuff from Avon called Skin So Soft. How many of you know what Skin So Soft is? Oh, it's, a, it's, it's good stuff. Number one, if you've got dry skin, it will slime you something good. Number two, if you want to smell sweet, it'll help you smell sweet. And especially you folks from the South, I know, uh, realize it is a fabulous insect repellent. It keeps the mosquitoes off of you. So you, you get slimed, you smell good, and the bugs leave you alone. Three, three for one, what a great deal. Now, I'm not sure for which of the three reasons she uses it, but she'll, she'll take a shower... And then she'll put skin so soft all over her body, and then she takes her towel and she wipes the, the skin so soft off. So anyway, I come into the bedroom. I'm still stinging from the night before, but you know, it's another day. And uh, I walk into the bedroom, and, and her towel is lying on the bed. So I pick up her towel, and, and I smell it. And I said, uh, this towel smells like you. And she says, now that's romantic. All right, let's see. I like you back there in the black shirt. Yeah, I'm talking to you. That's your wife? All right, you go home tonight and say, sweetheart, you smell like a towel. It ain't going to work. You'll you'll need to borrow one of the bedrooms over at the house, and I'll be glad to provide one. No, it's not going to work. And so I said, look, you don't have to make fun of me. I'm trying with this romance stuff, and you don't have to make fun of me. And she said, well, I thought that was romantic. And she walks out of the room, and the only thing she cannot verify is what happens next. I pray. I I pray. I'm desperate. I pray, Lord, I'm sorry. I would like to shower this woman with romance, but obviously I don't get it. So you're just going to have to step in, Lord Jesus, and meet the needs of her life that I'm obviously not capable of meeting, but I really wish something could happen here. And you know what? In His grace and mercy and kindness and goodness, the Lord showed me. It's just like that. Well, dummy, here's how romance works. And it's like the light bulb went on. And I want to tell you something. I know how romance works from the female perspective. God showed it to me. And I'm going to share this with you for free. You should pay thousands of dollars for this, but I'm going to give it to you for free. And I'm telling you, if you'll just get this, it's worth the whole time of you being here at Southeastern Seminary because here's how the romance thing works with a woman. Here we go. You'll never forget it. It's so easy to remember. It's just hard to do. Number one, for a woman, romance is a game. It's a game. 
Now, it's a very specific game. Romance is the game of hide-and-go-seek. She hides it, and you seek it. And that's it right there. That's it. Now, if you find it, uh, to quote that philosopher from Mayberry, it's good. It's good. And it is. It's wonderful. Now, if you don't find it, you can do one of two things. One, get mean, nasty, been out of shape, or you can remember, it's a game. And, and sometimes I win and sometimes I lose, but that's the fun of playing the game. So it's hide-and-go-seek. She hides it, you seek it. Now, there's a second part to the game. Uh, it's not fair, but it's their game. We have to play by their rules, and so here it is. What's romantic to your wife say today? Oh, yeah, you already know, don't you? She's not romantic with that stuff tomorrow. No, they move it. They move it. And, and here's the real kicker that I don't appreciate. They are so good at hiding it, sometimes they don't know where it is, but you're supposed to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, big time. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. You're like, honey, I'm begging you in Jesus' name, just tell me what to do. You should know what to do. Well, I don't. I don't. But she's not going to tell you. Now, you can get mean and been out of shape, or you can remember it's a game. She's good at it. Sometimes I win. Sometimes I lose. But here's the deal. You've got to study her. You have to watch her. And you need to understand that though a man will almost always equate romance with sex, a woman will not necessarily do so at all. In fact, they find all sorts of like weird, strange, bizarre things romantic. I'll give you one of the classics that I've yet to find a woman who says, no, I don't, I don't consider that to be romantic. I, I mean, it's almost universal. It may be universal. And, and here it is. Your wife finds it romantic if you will take out the trash and replace the trash bag. Oh, what a novel idea. I know, ladies, I don't understand it. It only took me 15 years to figure that one out. You say, you're kidding me. Oh, no, I'm not. I, I would take out the trash, fight the bears and the foxes and the wolves and the lions, come back in, and, and at first she would give me a standing ovation, and I felt good, and then she began not to applaud so much, and, and then all of a sudden she didn't do anything. And in fact, sometimes when I'd come back in, she'd give me a look, and so I'm like, all right, honey, what's the deal? I, I went outside. I've come back alive. The trash is out. What is your problem? I mean, what's wrong? And she said, have you ever thought about who replaces the trash bag? God knows my heart. The thought had never entered my mind. And she says, well, I'll tell you one thing. There's not a trash bag fairy in this house. <laughs> then I made a really huge mistake. I said, well, where are the trash bags? Where are the trash bags? Come here. Now, ladies, before I go on, you need to understand something right now, and, and we are totally uh, incapable of overcoming this. It's genetic. We can't, we can't help it. Men suffer both from pantry and refrigerator blindness. You do know this, don't you? We, 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 we can't see things. I mean, I come to the refrigerator, I open it up, and I'm looking for the ketchup, and I can't see it. And I literally, I begin to sweat. My pulse increases. I say, dear Lord Jesus, I am begging you, reveal the ketchup to me, please. Because if I had to and say, honey, she walks over, boom, boom, like you idiot. It was sitting right here the whole time. And so sure enough, she brings me into the pantry and right there on the first shelf, the glad trash bags, they'd been there for 15 years. And so you say, what do you do now? Well, now when I take out the trash, I very quickly yank it out, shake it, pop it in, Built, uh, folded over, takes 10 extra seconds, and it has all sorts of wonderful, glorious, fringe benefits for me. Now, I would have never equated the trash can with romance, but she does, so fine with me. All I'm saying is they put it in some really strange places, and the only way you'll figure it out is by watching and studying them very carefully. Now, number four, very quickly. You need to initiate intimate conversation, being honest and open. And the first sentence says it all. Talk with her at the feeling level, or if you like, listen to her thoughts. You say, you've got a misprint there. You mean listen to her words. No, the words mean nothing. You are married to a creature who is expert in code language. If you haven't figured that out, no wonder you're often sleeping on the couch, because here's how it works. You come home... <clears throat> You give her a kiss on the cheek, and you say, Honey, how's your day been? And she says, Fine. 
Now, does that fine mean fine? No. That fine means bad. But you weren't listening, were you? So you go in the family room. Uh, you're caught up on your studies, so you get that wonderful male therapy device, the remote control, and off you go. ESPN, uh, ESPN2, uh, ESPN News, uh, the Weather Channel, Fox. And, man, your blood pressure goes down, your pulse slows. And, man, you're just grooving. It, it's good. But three hours later, it hits you. She didn't fix me any supper. And men always get sensitive when they get hungry. And so you find her probably in the bedroom and you say, uh, Honey, uh, like, is anything bothering you? And what does she say? No. But does no mean no? No. No means yes. And it also means this. You weren't interested in finding out three hours ago? I ain't about to tell you now. No, sweet Jesus will return to this earth before you know what's bothering me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, you could say, well, she shouldn't be like that, but I would come back and say, you should have been listening. Because in her female way, she screamed at you, I've had a bad day. And here's what I've learned in 33 years of being married. If I will just, you know, uh, not turn on the TV, not play with the computer or the iPad, uh, set my BlackBerry aside or my iPhone or my Droid or whatever you have, and then lock in with her eye to eye, ear to ear, heart to heart, communicate to her that I'm not in a hurry, I'm there as long as she needs me to be there. 15, 20, 30 minutes of that kind of attention can change the atmosphere of the home for the rest of the evening. So you love her by giving her that intimate conversation. Then you love her by providing home support and stability, i.e. family commitment. And I'll just say it very quickly and move on. Outside of Jesus, she should be first in your life, not your children, not your church, not your school, not anything. She should be first after the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you love her in that kind of a way, you will bless her in a tremendous fashion. Now, very quickly, uh, what does God have to say to the men? Take the blue sheet out. And if you look again at the text, two things here very quickly. Ladies, the Bible says that you are to care for your husband by submitting to him. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? Here's the rationale. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. His body is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I could spend so much time here, but let me just give you the Reader's Digest version. First of all, uh, there is no inferiority in being submissive. How do you know that? Because of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all three equally God. And yet it's very clear in the Bible, God the Son submits to God the Father. God the Holy Spirit submits to both. And therefore, if you want a role model for how you, and here's a good way of saying it, how you yield in your will to the leadership and the direction of your husband, look at how the Lord Jesus yields and submits to his heavenly Father. In fact, when it says there in verse 22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, basically Paul is saying that when you submit to your husband, you're worshiping the Lord. And in actuality, you're submitting to the Lord. Now, if he were to ask you to do something illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical, I think you have to refuse his direction and leadership. But outside of those very clear categories... I believe that God will honor your obedience to his word and he will honor you being yielded and submissive to him in that relationship. It's not that he is better than you. In fact, I'm quite convinced that men, for the most part, are inferior to women in a lot of important and significant areas, but we didn't make up the rules. This is, this is from above. Uh, this is the way God designed and structured a redeemed relationship. And so you honor him by that submissive yielded spirit but also you honor him with your respect because the last phrase of verse 33 says and let the wife see that she respects her husband well that naturally then leads into these five things on the blue sheet that i walk you through very quickly as to how it is that you can be a blessing to him first you give him admiration and respect you are proud of him, not out of obligation and not in any sincere way, but you're grateful that God gave him to you as a gift and, and you build him up and you appraise him and you affirm him in those areas where uh, he excels and, and then you pray for him and encourage him in areas where he, he needs to work. Now, 
just let me be honest very quickly here. I, I hope that all of you guys like me and enjoy getting to know me and enjoy your time here and that you feel like I help contribute to a good experience for you all. But the fact of the matter is, in, in one sense, I don't really care what you think about me. As long as I know that brown-eyed brunette that you'll meet in just a minute loves me, that she believes in me, that she's proud of me. You see, you might not like me because you don't know me. If she doesn't like me, it is because she knows me. And I can't explain it. But I, outside of Jesus, care more about what she thinks about me than anybody else. And the whole world can be against me. But if I go home and she tells me, I love you, I am proud of you, I'm grateful for you, you are a wonderful man of God, I, I'm just fine. I am just fine. Your admiration and respect means that much to this man in your life. Secondly, provide sexual fulfillment. I've got a paragraph there that has a word that's underlined that's the crucial word, communicate. Communicate. I understand everything fits physiologically, but this good gift from a great God, if it is going to be enjoyed maximally, requires that you communicate well with each other, that you talk, that you understand, that you know what blesses the other and you know what is meaningful to the other. Now, again, this is an area that though everything fits, uh, it's still a challenge because men and women are very different in this area. Men, for example, uh, are very much like uh, microwave ovens, but women are a whole lot more like crockpots. And um, I didn't say crackpots. I said crockpots. Now, you say, what do you mean by that? And here's what I mean. And by the way, any of you yet have teenagers? Anybody got teenagers yet? A few of you, but all of you are going to probably one of these days. So listen and listen very well. Men are creatures of sight. And men are moved by what they see. And when a man sees what he likes, like a microwave oven, boom, he can heat up and it takes him no time at all. In contrast, women are much more creatures of the ear and of the heart. And therefore, like a crock pot, they have to kind of simmer a while before they're ready. That's why Job said in chapter 31, verse 1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look inappropriately upon a young maiden, upon a virgin woman. And the reason I brought that up was you need to help your teenage boys understand the power of their eyes. You also need to help teenage girls understand the power of a male eye and then what that means in the way they dress themselves and the way they carry themselves so that they don't become the occasion of stumbling for, for their brother in Christ or even for the unbelieving man who needs to know the Lord. And so these are crucial things that we need to understand when it comes to intimacy. But the fact of the matter is no marriage will ever be everything God wants it to be without the intimate part of marriage being meaningful and satisfying uh, and enjoyable. Number three, you bless him by cultivating home support. You create a home that offers him an atmosphere of peace, quiet, and refuge. You, you manage the home and care of the children. Uh, it indeed should be a place of rest and rejuvenation. And remember, the wife, the mother, is the emotional hub of the family, ought to say it, as we all know the colloquial phrase, in the home, if mama ain't happy, what? Ain't nobody going to be happy. Now, ladies, that may not be fair, but it's true. Uh, at our house, bless my poor wife, she was condemned for years, two decades, to live in a male dormitory. I mean, bless her heart, I came home one day, and I don't know what had happened, but she walked out on the front porch, got in my face, and said, I want to tell you something. Boys will do things a dog won't do. Now, I don't know what they did, I don't want to know what they did. I just know that it was, a, it was a challenge for her. But anyway, because it was one against five, it really took five to, to take care of her, we, we came up with a little code. And the little code was, Mama has got that look in her eye. We would just go around and do this, and that would let us know that we need to be careful, we need to be cautious, you know, it's just not going to be. So anyway, true story, God being my witness, came home one day, all four boys out on the front porch, Daddy, stop, stop right there, we need to talk. Timothy, my youngest, the verbal one, said, Daddy, the look is back, it's back big time, you need to do something. So I go into the house, look into the kitchen, there she is, and by the way, she's doing business in the kitchen. I didn't have to say a word. I could tell she had the look. So quietly went back outside, quietly shut the door, got the boys in the mail huddle, said, guys, you're right, uh, the look's back, it's back big time. Tim said again, well, what are we supposed to do? And I said, well, guys, uh, here's Dad's strategy, um, every man for himself. <laughs> that, that's my counsel. 
And uh, here's the deal. I'm going to leave her alone for a couple of hours, and I think she'll be all right. I'd encourage you to leave her alone. And and if you cross her path and and get in trouble, don't call me because I'm not coming. We're all on our own. All right? But now, ladies, I'm going to get in your business for just a moment like I did the men about romance. And I say it because I love you, not because I'm trying to make you feel bad or hurt your feelings or anything. But here's the deal. Go home tonight, look at the Proverbs, and here's what you'll discover. A man would rather live in the desert, on the roof, or in an attic than with a, the King James says, a contentious woman. That is a fancy way of saying that you are a woman who gripes, nags, and God forbid, whines. Now, you say, what if I do gripe, uh, and if I nag, and if I whine, like as the Bible says, a drippy faucet? Well, here's what will happen. Fight or flight. Fight or flight. He may fight you physically. Most men don't because it strips them of their masculinity. They go to jail like they ought. He might fight you verbally, but he won't do that very long either. You say, why not? Because we lose. We lose. We can't whoop y'all in a verbal battle. It's really quite simple. We know from sociological research that the average male communicates and generates about ten to 12,000 words a day. Average female, you ready? Twenty to 25,000 words a day with gust up to 50. And uh, <laughs> I am kidding about the gust. I have no empirical data for that, but... I think it's still probably true. But anyway, so here's the deal. Even those of us like many of us, we we get paid to speak. I speak a lot more than the average male, but my wife can just talk me into the ground because she's more verbal. And secondly, she uses this thing called female logic, which is really nothing more than a marital stun gun. I mean, we're talking, we're dialoguing. After all, I do have a Ph.D. I have a minor in philosophy, so I've learned to put together arguments, package them well, you know, logical syllogisms, the whole bit. So I can be giving her this airtight, infallible, irrefutable argument, and she'll say something. Thing, and I go, what? And I, and I, and I lock up. I, I freeze because I'm thinking, if I lived for 10,000 millennia, I would never think like that. And all of a sudden, she's gone and the argument's over and I can't catch up and I lose. So I'm not going to fight her. So if you don't fight, what do you do? You take flight. Some men walk out of their marriages, but some men, even some men in the ministry... Take on a non-feminine mistress. And that mistress is their church and their job. And oh yes, the world praises them because they are such workaholics and they are so diligent to be at every home and to be at every meeting and and to be there at the crack of dawn and stay way past uh, the, the, the going down of the sun. And they say, oh, isn't he wonderful? You're not wonderful. But I understand that some of you do that because rather than break your covenant with your mate, you'll just stay away as much as you can. And less time will be better as far as you're concerned. And that's a tragedy. And ladies, you are the one that provides a home that draws him in and makes him want to be there, stay there, and just love being in your presence. Very quickly, give me five minutes and I'll be through. Number four, strive to be an attractive wife. Now, if you unwrap that paragraph, I point out that a, an attractive woman is attracted both inwardly and outwardly, publicly and privately. Inwardly, you develop that Christ-likeness, what First uh, Peter 3 calls a, a gentle and quiet spirit. And, of course, that's what all of you should strive for primarily. Why? Because, number one, that beauty lasts forever. And, number two, what you are on the inside is going to either detract or enhance who you are on the outside. If you are a pretty lady in here, you'll become a prettier lady out here. And I don't care if you're drop-dead gorgeous. I don't care. If you're not very pretty on the inside, after a while, your attractiveness will begin to wane, fade, and disappear. So what's in here is going to either enhance and and, and complement what you are out here, or it's going to detract and take it away. So you're to be an attractive lady inwardly, but also outwardly, publicly. So your husband can actually say, can you believe something like me caught something like this? Can, can you believe this? But also you want to be attractive privately. And I don't want to make you ladies mad at me as we get started tonight, but can I just say very quickly, just, just very quickly a word uh, to you about this very evil thing that was created in the place where I know the devil is going to spend the rest of his life 
called a flannel gown. Can I just talk to you for a moment about the demonic nature of flannel gowns? And, and if I need to give an invitation afterwards, I'll let you come down here and get on your knees and, and repent. And your husband will be there cheering along the way. Uh, here's the bottom line. Just cut to the chase. There ain't no such thing as a sexy flannel gown. It does not exist. You say, how do you know? I've looked. I've been into Victoria's Secrets. I even snuck into Fredericks of Hollywood when it was back in existence and said, do you have a sexy, sexy flannel gown? And they looked at me like I was an idiot. And of course we don't. There is no such thing. I was sharing this wonderful insight one time in a church in Mississippi. Afterwards, this girl came up to me, pretty little thing. Uh, but if Lucy could kill, I would not be with you tonight. And she got right in my face and said, I, my husband wants to talk to you. She walks away. And I'm thinking, what is her problem? Here comes her husband. He ain't mad. No. That boy's grinning from this ear to this ear, gives me a big bear hug, puts his arm around me, says, man, where have you been all my married life? I want to invite you over to the house tonight because we're going to have a granny gown bonfire. We're going to burn them all. Now, I could spend a long time up here. In fact, I, I just got to do this. It's just too much fun. Only one time in my life has anyone ever disagreed with me. I'm speaking somewhere, don't remember where. Afterwards, this old codger. Now, understand, I don't think everybody in their 80s is an old codger, okay? But you know the type. Got that devilish twinkle in his eye. Got that mischievous grin. You can tell by just looking at him. He's been in mischief since he came out of his mother's womb. He'll be in mischief probably even in the casket. I mean, it's just how he is. So he comes up to me, and he hits me in the rib. And it hurt. I mean, it hurt. And so I stepped back, and I said, Sir, and he said, Hey, i got to talk to you, young fella. I said, what about? He said, you're wrong about them flannel gowns. I said, really? He said, oh, yeah. This is how he said it. This is he. He said, my old lady and me been married over 50 years, and she's got a, she's got a wonderful, sexy flannel gown, and I love it. So I said, well, sir, I, 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 I'm lost. I, I have no words for this. You're the first man in my entire life who said to me that you liked your wife's flannel gown. And he fired back. I didn't say I liked it. I said, I love it. He said, uh, it's got holes all in it. And I go to bed at night, it's like going treasure hunting in that flannel gown. And, and I, I know, I blushed. You never get me. You never get me, ever. But I blushed. Turned red in the face. He hit me again. Said, so, so get your wife a, a holy flannel gown. You'll like it. And, he, and off he goes. So get you one with a bunch of holes in it. He probably will make an exception. All right. Finally, and we're through, become your husband's best friend. Emily, who's married to my uh, assistant, Michael, uh, is about ready to bring this to a close. But imagine Emily had come in here tonight and said, uh, uh, Dr. Aiken, I, I'm sorry, but something's come up. you got a minute and a half, two minutes. Here it is. You need to work really hard at becoming your mate's best friend. In fact, when I do premarital counseling, after I talk to them about do they know the Lord, uh, will they commit to be involved in a Bible-believing church, talk to them about some challenging errors in marriage like communication and finances and sex and children and parents and all that. At the very end of my first session, I'll usually look at the, the bride-to-be and I'll say, I want to ask you a question. Do, do you like him? And usually she says, well, I love him. And I say, that's great, but that wasn't my question. Do you like him? And then I'll look at the man and I will say, do you like her? And then I will say this, I want to challenge you, if it's not already taking place, I want to challenge you to begin to work really hard at growing to be one another's best friend. And here's why. If you will become best friends with your mate, I can make you two promises. Number one, your marriage will last and go the distance. And number two, your marriage will be a blessing. You say, how can you make that promise? Because number one, best friends don't give up on their best friends. And number two, you like hanging out with your best friend. You say, so you married your best friend. Well, I didn't know it at the time. We had no premarital counseling. Uh, our pastor announced the Sunday before he married us that after 20 years of marriage, he and his wife were separating and getting a divorce. On that Monday morning, I'd just come back from Dallas for a week. I mean, I didn't see my wife for almost a year before we married. I come back, see her for a week, and we get married. But he comes in and says, you know, after last night, I don't think I have much to say, so I'll see you at the rehearsal dinner Friday. And that was the totality of our premarital counseling. 
So no, I thought I was marrying this really pretty brown-eyed brunette that was, you know, fun to hug and kiss and squeeze. And she was a nice person, and she had a lot of gifts and errors that I was totally deficient in. But now I'm 54, she's 52, as I said earlier. And though I have in my life a circle of really good friends, by the way, every one of them is a male, I would never have a female in that inner circle of really close, intimate, uh, I am a transparent with friends. But inside that circle is an innermost circle of one, and in there is the very, very, very best friend I have. And that best friend is my wife, Charlotte. I'm not an axe murderer. I'm not into pornography. I haven't done anything, you know, like that. But the fact of the matter is, she could ruin me. She could. She's seen me at my worst. She's seen me when I wasn't acting very much at all like Jesus. And yet I've never feared that she would betray me because... She's my best friend. And she has promised me and I have promised to her that I will stay with her to the end and I intend to fulfill that promise. So if you'll just work really hard while you're here at growing to be best friends, you'll find all these ten things we've talked about will fall perfectly, beautifully, and wonderfully into place. Let me pray and Emily, I'll give it back to you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time tonight. Thank you for these sweet couples you brought here to Southeastern. Bless them. Bless their marriages. Bless their families. And Lord, as I said a moment ago, may they graduate and leave this place far more in love with you and with one another than when they began. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.